Well, our scripture reading today is found in Acts. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. But a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. In great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at her feet and breathed her last. When the young men came and in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her along beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. If you were to take a poll, a survey of what people found most offensive about the Bible, what do you think would be at the top of the list? Jesus teaches on marriage. Jesus is teaching on sexual identity. Jesus is teaching on men and women's roles. Right, as a Seattle native and a pastor in the community for the last eight years, my, my experience has been one of the most offensive teachings in the Christian faith is judgment. This is, has got to be one of the least popular teachings in the Bible, doesn't it? At the end of the day, everyone will stand before God in judgment. So that, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Christians believe. And I don't see Christians lead with this very often, right? We don't do this, do we? I've seen bumper stickers, you know, they have, you know, he is greater than I, right? Or um, what are some other bumper stickers that you'll say? Fish, right? You might see honk if you love Jesus, right? I, I saw, I saw this, this funny bumper sticker. It said, um, honk if you love Jesus, text if you want to see him. <laughs> it's like dark humor. I kind of like that, you know? <laughs> Right, in, in Seattle area, we have bumper stickers that say, right, coexist, right? Our society values tolerance and acceptance. I've never seen a bumper sticker that said, I love judgment. I've never seen that one. I've never seen a bumper sticker that says, got judgment. <laughs> I've never seen a bumper sticker that says, I can't wait to die and be judged. I, maybe it's out there, but I have not seen it. Many are quick to quote Jesus saying in Matthew 7, don't judge or you'll be judged. Right? We're, quick to, we're quick with that one in comparison to what Jesus teaches in a little bit later, Matthew 12. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Right? 
That one is not so much like found on a coffee cup or a nice little, you know, Christian bookstore poster that we have up there. Every careless word will be judged, right? I haven't seen that one. It's offensive to us. A higher power, someone outside of ourselves, outside of our culture, outside of us, could tell us that something is right or wrong. Don't we define morality for ourselves? Don't we define good and evil? If there is a God, it's certainly very narrow-minded that this God would have claim upon all people and good and evil. It's certainly super narrow-minded and offensive to say the only way to this one God is through his one son, Jesus. Certainly that, that's kind of narrow, closed off. Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I think here's what Jesus is saying. You can't not judge. We can't. I think part of being made in the image of God is that's, that's part of how God has made us. We can't not judge. As much as we say there's no judgment, we do judge. Jesus said you have to judge with right judgment. So instead of judging someone for, anyways, I need to stick with my notes here. I know this is touchy. <laughs> if we're judging someone or something, we, we view them as judgmental, right? Aren't we, aren't we doing the same thing? We can't escape it. I like the way Tim Keller puts it like this. Tolerance isn't a lack of beliefs. Everyone has exclusive beliefs. We all think we are right about important things, and the world would be better if others agreed. Tolerance is whether your beliefs lead you to treat those disagreeing with kindness, respect, humility. If you're intolerant of intolerant people, then you are intolerant and doing the same thing you accuse others of. Right, we, we want... We, we can't escape judging, but I think we also want judgment. Even though it offends us, I think underneath that, I mean, it's just maybe what offends us more is the standard of judgment, but we do want, we do want judgment. When someone steals your phone, takes your wallet, breaks into your car, what do you want? Justice. You want judgment. When you're hurt or your friend is hurt, what do you want? You want judgment. It wouldn't be loving to say, I don't care what happens to my friend if they're used and abused and destroyed. Many people claim they can't believe in a God of the Bible, a God who judges people, who punishes people, because isn't God love? But I'd like to set before you this morning that the idea of God who judges is actually compelling. It's actually what we're really longing for. It's what we're seeking. The teaching of the Bible in regards to judgment is that one day all things in the world will be made right. There will be judgment, and it is good news. Evil will be confronted. What causes heartache and ruin and destruction in this world will be destroyed. That is good news. We want judgment. So as we consider this story in Acts, a story that's shocking, <laughs> you read it's kind of disturbing. The author of, of Acts, this guy Luke, I think he says this before us, yes, as a warning. A warning against deceit and lying and manipulation. It's, it's a caution, yes. But it's also a comfort to know that those who stand against the unity of the church, those who are influenced by Satan to seek to deceive and destroy, will be destroyed. Our enemy has been decisively and ultimately defeated. And God will protect the unity of his church. So I think it's a caution and a comfort. You guys with me? Let's look at the story. We've been going through Acts since the beginning of the new year. We've seen the promise, the Spirit promised by Jesus. We've seen the Spirit come at Pentecost. We've seen the miracles that have done by the hands of the apostles, by the Spirit. 
And it's in between the, the, the teachings of the Spirit and the unity that he causes that we find this story. It's kind of sandwiched in there. And there's, it comes right after this example of a guy named Joseph, or the apostle called him Barnabas, I mean, sons of encouragement. And he had this field that he sold, and he brought the proceeds, and he laid it down at the apostles' feet. This is what, this is what Christians do. They're, they're moved by in this radical generosity. The reason my wife and I were able to buy a house in Des Moines is because we met a Christian who said, Daniel, I want to sell you my house. I met him, and a week later, he told me this. I want to sell you my house within your budget and within your time frame because we want to, be, we want to see a gospel-centered church started in this city. We couldn't afford that house. That was just a radical act of generosity. So what, this is what Jesus' people do. They're generous. And then we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's this generosity of Barnabas is contrasted with this story. So the first sentence of Acts 5 shows us the, a contrast. It, it shows us and it begins with the, the conjunction that means on the contrary. But, but, a man named Ananias is contrasted with Barnabas and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, when you first read that, you, you might think that Ananias was judged because it's like he was kind of forced to bring all of the proceeds the prophet from the land and bring it to the apostles. He had no other choice. But then when you read the questions of Peter, you see this, this wasn't the case. Peter says, was it not yours? It remained unsold, remained your own. And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? So it's like, in other words, this was voluntary. He didn't have to sell his land. He didn't have to give the proceeds to the church. But he said he was going to give more than he actually did. So he's being judged for his deception. He says, you've lied not to man, but to God. This wasn't some sort of like domineering, autocratic leadership from Peter. This was voluntary. This was a, not a communistic, forced selling of property that everyone shares together. He didn't have to give anything, Peter said. And he was trying to be deceitful, make it look like he gave more, but he said he kept back for himself. He set aside for himself. And it might be, okay, it seems like maybe Ananias cared. Maybe he, he saw Barnabas do this and he wanted some of that recognition or fame. Maybe he cared more about his image than he did actually about his honesty. He cared more about the outward appearance maybe than, than obedience. And I like the way F.F. Bruce describes this scene. He says, Ananias, in an effort to gain a reputation for greater generosity than he had actually earned, trying to deceive the believing community, but in trying to deceive the community, he was really trying to deceive the Holy Spirit, whose life-giving power had created the community and maintained it in being. The desire to gain a higher reputation than one's due for generosity or some other virtue is not so uncommon that anyone can afford to adopt a self-righteous attitude towards Ananias. In a situation with those who followed Barnabas' example, received high commendation within the group, the social pressure on others to do the same or rather appear to do the same must have been considerable. So we can't just be kind of self-righteous and high-minded. Ananias, I'd never do that. Wow, evil, wicked, horrible. No good, very bad day, right? <laughs> but he was trying to lie to the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, you weren't lying to us, man. You were lying to God. And when Ananias heard these words, could have been he was so shocked, he had a heart attack. Could have been this is just God judging him right here. Through the heart attack or some other means. He dies. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. There's no mention of the kind of typical Jewish funeral 
uh, kind of honoring of the dead. There's, it, it's very similar to a story that reads in Leviticus 10, when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, that's recorded in Leviticus 10, they, they sin against God, they test the Lord, they died, and they're carried out in their tunics and their coats, and they're buried. Like the traditional customs of the deceased, we're not going to observe those. Just, these guys are buried. This is what God tells Moses and Aaron, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will demonstrate my holiness. And before all the people, I will be glorified. God's going to reveal his holiness and his glory. And it's as though in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see the same honor, respect, reverence that the people of God were to have in the sanctuary at the temple or at the tabernacle is the same weight the people were to have for the new temple in the church. Jesus is filled people by the Spirit. So, three hours later, unfortunately, no one tells Sapphira. She's unaware of what happened. And Peter asked her, he knows, like, tell me how much you sold the land for. Because you said you were going to get the proceeds, but Ananias didn't give what you guys sold it for, right? And she said, yes, for so much. Peter's testing her. She has the opportunity here. It's so sad, doesn't she? She has the opportunity to confess. Yes, my husband and I, we, we agreed to try to get away with this and be deceptive, and we're so sorry. Please, we appeal to the mercy of God. Nope. Yes, for so much. And Peter says, how is it that you agreed together to test the Lord? This is what ultimately you're doing. Behold, right, just, I don't know how, I mean, it has to be an apostolic authority to say something like this, right? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they're, they're waiting for you. Talk about the boldness of Peter to say that. Certainty. Immediately she fell down dead. They carried her out and they buried her alongside her husband. And great fear comes upon the whole church when they heard these things. So this was the plan. We're going to try to work together to deceive the church, to keep back for ourselves some of the proceeds. And we're going to try to get away with testing the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit says, you're done, right? No. As we consider how this story fits into the larger story of Acts, we see the story is sandwiched between two accounts of the Holy Spirit and describing the church. It says, just as many signs were being done through and among the apostles, and, and before that, there was great unity and togetherness of the church. We see that in this context, those who seek to manipulate, those who seek to abuse the unity and the intimacy of the church, those who threaten its togetherness, will be judged. We're not told how much they sold the field for. We're not told how much they kept back for themselves. Right? That, those details don't really matter to the story. The point is they tried to deceive the church. They kept back for themselves. And their evil is deception. They try to take advantage of this community of intimacy and oneness and togetherness. And the, the honesty and the unity of the community is at stake. And strife and secrecy and selfishness destroys unity. Selfishness destroys togetherness. Those who believe they can lie, those who believe they can test God and deceive God will certainly try to lie and deceive and abuse others, right? Peter asked Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? And there's a phrase that Luke uses in that description there in Acts that that kind of phrase is really only reserved for one other person in, in the story of Luke and Acts. You guys might guess who it is. Judas. Judas Iscariot. Satan is described in Acts, in Luke, excuse me, as entering into Judas. So it's, it's not as though this is, this is simply a warning of greed and self-centeredness. I've heard the story kind of preached that way before, right? But it, it, it's, it's as though there's an attack 
from Satan on the unity of the church. The word Satan simply means adversary. The Bible uses multiple words to describe this, this figure, this character. The devil, the thief, the evil one, the enemy, the prince of the power of the air, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the ruler of this world, the God of this world. Satan is described as a roaring lion, the father of lies. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus gives the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders this, this wicked burn. And I just realized that, though no pun intended, it's wicked, but he's calling them Satan. John 8, 44. It's what Jesus says. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. This is how Jesus describes Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's how the Bible describes Satan. He's a murderer from the beginning. He's a deceiver. He's a destroyer. He's a thief. He tempts. He opposes his God. He opposes his people. He opposes God's mission, his church, his work. He seeks to undo. He seeks to counterfeit. He seeks to unravel, but he can't create in himself. He can just try to distort and change what God has already made. There's this very thought-provoking book by the British writer and philosopher C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And it's a story about a demon, apprentice Wormwood, who is coming to his uncle, Screwtape, Uncle Screwtape. And it's this kind of Christian satire, but it's about this, this advice that the older, wiser demon gives this apprentice demon about how to deceive the enemy who's referring to Jesus and his people. And there's, there's, a, there's a line in this that I think sums up what the enemy does in Screwtape Letters. He says this, Never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure, it is healthy and normal and in a satisfying form. We are, in a sense, on the enemies, right? He's referring to the enemy as God, Jesus Christ. We're on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is the enemy's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not been enabled us to produce one. Right? They can't produce desires. All we can do, he says, is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. That's thought-provoking, isn't it? The enemy is crafty. He will use the good desires we'll have, or he'll inflame desires and distort desires to accomplish his will. So there's a couple mistakes we can sometimes make when we're talking about the adversary, the Satan, the enemy. We can, on the one hand, see him everywhere, like unnecessarily giving him responsibility for anything that goes wrong. He's behind every rock. He's behind every bush. We get a cold and we say, not today, Satan, right? <laughs> He's behind every rock. He's behind every bush. We get a nail in our tire. We say, Satan individually came to my car and he took his hammer and he nailed that nail into my tire. <coughs> right? It's not spiritual maturity to be so focused on the demonic that it actually takes our focus off Jesus. But on the other hand, it's also an error to conclude there's no such thing. Satan, demons, enemy. I mean, as Americans, we tend to view this very materialistic in perspective, Right? Be unaware that there's a spiritual battle. We're not waging against flesh and blood. 
We don't want, we don't want to ignore these spiritual dynamics. Right? We can't just simply, a lot of times you just think, I'll just solve my problems through material things, the right tools. Ignore prayer and fasting, those things don't work. <laughs> we, we need something real, like medicine, you know. Prayer, pfft. what is that? So there's, there's a mistake we can make. Some we, can, we can make a mistake in regards to his power. Satan is not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-wise. And he's already been defeated. Amen. Amen. Anything that Satan does, he's allowed to do. Yep. He's on a leash. Yeah. God is above. He's over. He's sovereign. Satan is wise. Yes, he's crafty. He's cunning. But he's not all-knowing like God. He's not all-powerful like God. He's not all-wise like God. God is so much wiser Amen. and more powerful than Satan Amen. that God even factored in Satan's attempt to overthrow him into his plan of overthrowing him. <laughs> that has to be humiliating and infuriating, doesn't it? It's like the moment Satan's thinking, oh, I'm going to win this. I've got Jesus on the cross. It's over. God goes, actually, that was the death of death, and that was actually his enthronement in glory, and now, now you have no power. Amen. Oh! <laughs> this probably made him even angrier. He thinks he's opposing the plan of God, but he's actually working to fulfill it. So we first meet this adversary in the Bible. He's described as a serpent in the opening pages of the Bible, Genesis 3, and he's described as the most crafty beast. And he deceives the woman. He gets her to doubt God's kindness and goodness. He puts thoughts in her head that God is withholding something good from her. He deceives the man and woman, and they sin against God, and they hide. They blame each other. Things go horribly. And, and there's a sense in which I think something similar is happening here in Acts 5. What's happening at the beginning of this new covenant, this new age, the age of the Spirit, the, the new covenant has come. The early formation of the church, Satan is trying to deceive Right, even similar words, with the knowledge of her husband, with the husband who was with her, right? Satan is trying to deceive and destroy and invade the goodness of God and the goodness of and the purity of his church, and God will not allow it. Amen. In this way, the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira are not only warnings against hypocrisy and deceit, but they are a demonstration of God's power that Satan has been defeated and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Amen. Judgment was not carried out in the temple or the council of Israel's leaders, but it was through the apostle Peter, through this apostolic authority. Peter is the one who has been trusted to speak on God's behalf. So like there was judgment that came before in the Old Testament through Moses and Joshua, through the prophets, through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the, the apostles are the group who speak with the divine authority, who ultimately, the, the word that they wrote, the word that they recorded, have become the, the New Testament, kind of a new, new showing of God's power over Satan. So we tried to think about this story, Acts 5, in the context of the story of Acts, the historical context, the, the history of redemption context. We've seen the further evidence and the confirmation that, that, that this, there's a shift here from the old covenant to the new covenant, that, that the holiness and the respect that the people of God were to have in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the worship of God, was to continue in the new temple, in the tabernacle, in the worship of God. But let's consider, what, is, what can we do with, like, what contemporary significance does this story have for us? What's the moral? Just don't lie. If you say you're going to give something to God, you'd better give it. Or you might die with your spouse. 
like to return to two words that I used earlier to describe the story, a story of caution and a story of comfort. It's a story that cautions us, I think, because as this act instilled fear and awe in the church, it, that phrase is repeated twice. Did you guys see that there? Great fear came upon all who heard, right in the final sentence. Then great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. It shows us God is, is a holy God. He vanquishes evil. He, he knows all. I mean, how did Peter know that he lied, that she, he lied and she lied? It's just the spirit. God sees. He knows. He sees the depths of our hearts. There's no hiding from God. What's done in secret, what's done in the darkness, will be revealed. And this is a story of caution for those in the church. It's showing how deadly and destructive, one of the implications is, how deadly and destructive it is to care more about image in regards to your peers and others than about honesty and worship and devotion. And not only do I see it in this text, I've just seen it in pastoral ministry and in this church and other churches at it might not look like dropping dead right there, but it looks like judgment in one form or the other. Those who seek to harm, destroy, undermine, deceive, undercut the unity and the beauty of God's church will experience discipline. And this kind of conviction, it's, I think this, it's this kind of conviction, this kind of fear, this kind of reverence, this reverential awe towards God, it, it leads us to godly repentance, doesn't it? This kind of conviction is to genuine repentance is not, oh man, my sin really made me look bad in the presence of others. That doesn't produce godly repentance. That's not godly conviction. Godly conviction is I've sinned against God and I'm trying to hide it from him. Humility leads us to be honest with God and with others. But the story is a caution, right? The story is also a comfort. It's a comfort to see how God values and protects the unity of his church. It's a comfort for me as a pastor to know this. <laughs> it is not up to me. Thank Jesus. I, I can destroy it too. I could undo it. And God cares so much about the unity of his church that he's going to remove. Immediately, eventually, one day, he's going to remove those who seek to hurt and deceive and abuse. It comforts us to know that also when we confess our sins, Something that Ananias and Sapphira did not do, God is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. All sin, church, will be dealt with. Amen? We'll be judged. But those who have turned from trusting in themselves to trust in Jesus will not come under condemnation. Christ takes the full penalty for our sin, and we stand before this, this God is worthy of fear, reverential awe, we're supposed to revere him, right? We can stand before this holy God, confident because of what Christ has done. The consequence of our sin is death. Jesus has taken that death upon himself. The scandal of grace. The scandal of grace is not that Jesus was worthy of death, but he willingly took it upon himself. It's not as though he succumbed to the temptation of Satan and then he's, he gets judged like all we should be judged. He resisted the enemy. He lived a sinless life. He never rebelled against God. He never tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. He, he lived by the Spirit in, in unity and devotion and worship. And yet he experiences what we deserved upon himself. He willingly takes that for us so that we could stand before a just and holy God, forgiven and cleansed and made holy. It's amazing. 
And when you believe this message, when you believe this good news that, that even though I've sinned against God, I've lied to him, I've, I've cared more about how I look than, than him, I've cared more about my own rules and regulations than, than his law and commands. I've, I've, been, I've been so self-centered and self-focused. It's about me. I've, it's not about him. It's who's deserving all the glory and the honor and the praise. When we come to this conclusion that I've sinned against this God and, and I deserve judgment, and yet in his grace, he sent his son to take this judgment in my place. Amen. And now I can live freely and forgiven. When you believe this good news of God's grace in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you no longer have to deceive. Your image is not wrapped up in what you do or don't do. It's given to you by faith. Christians aren't those who lie to the Holy Spirit. We're those who live by the Spirit. Amen. We, by faith, believe that what God has said is true. What he says about me is true. And my aim is to align my conduct, my thinking, my affections, my convictions, my behavior with who God already says that I am. This is hard for us to understand. It's hard for me to try to communicate it. Because everything in life works the exact opposite way. Bosses don't come to the worst employees and say, man, you've had a horrible year. You've been so unproductive, you're lazy. You show up late. You're like, you probably should get rid of you. I mean, you're, you're not really adding much value. You're actually taking away from the company. But I'm going to give you the, big, the biggest raise. Have you guys ever heard a story like that? I've never heard that. Bosses don't come to the worst employees to give them the biggest raises. Parents don't naturally go to their children when they're rebelling and throwing tantrums. They don't naturally move towards them in love and grace. Naturally, we get inconvenienced. We get angry. We get frustrated. A wife doesn't naturally move in intimacy towards her husband who has been mean and harsh to her. It doesn't happen naturally. A husband doesn't naturally respond in kindness and affection towards a wife who snaps at him and disrespects him. But if by faith we believe I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm holy, my sin doesn't change what God says about me, my sins actually become opportunities to believe what he says about me, my, my sins actually become opportunities to practice my faith, there's a supernatural overflow that can come from that where if I'm functionally believing, even if my wife is snapping at me, she's being disrespectful towards me, and everything, your former self, naturally, I mean, just wanting to get angry or withdraw or speak harshly, I can, I can think, Lord willing, this doesn't happen often. I wish it happened way more than it does. Jesus has been so gracious towards me. I was, I've been harsh. I've been so disrespectful to him. God, help me to believe that I respond from your response to me, not respond to my response or my wife's response to me. That, that, that's by faith we do that. I love the way Dane Ortland puts it in his book, Gentle and Lowly. The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes lots of sermons Lots of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposure to the gospel over many years. This is what I love. He says here, perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today 
is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep your cool towards him in the wake of it. So we see a story like Ananias and Sapphira, and yes, we want to experience this alignment and this understanding of fear. God is to be revered and respected, but this fear is not something that is to drive us away from him. Because we see our own sin in the story, and we say, well, I've Man, I've lied to God. I've, I've actually done, probably done worse things than what Ananias and Sapphira have done. God must really hate me. It's not the threat. The, the threat of this story is well, you've been invited in to this community and, and the attacks of the enemy will not prevail over his plan. Yes, God punished Ananias and Sapphira. Satan filled their heart and God was, he's not gonna be mocked. He's not gonna be deceived. But we are called through the story, I believe, to be warned, but also to be comforted that nothing will stand against those who are in Christ Jesus. May we walk as children of light, amen? amen? And walk in light gladly and humbly, seeking to be honest with God and with each other. Amen? amen? We believe in this gospel. This can actually help us to be closer together. I don't, I don't care as much about my image as I care about honoring this holy God. So I can tell you my sins. Because my, my image is not wrapped up into what I've done. It's, it's wrapped up into what Jesus says about me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that our enemy did not have the final say. And we trust that his defeat is imminent. We, we trust the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Father, you have written instruction for us. You have given us the scriptures. You've given us this story, even Acts 5, that our joy may be complete. We believe that you are light, Father. We believe there's no darkness in you. We believe that, that, that no darkness will approach a, a holy God of light. Darkness has no place in you. And we believe that if we walk in the light as you are in the light, we'll have partnership, we'll have fellowship, we'll have union with, with one another and with you. We will believe that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us, cleansed us from all unrighteousness. We also trust, Father, that we say we have no sin. We're, we're deceiving ourselves. We, we are sinners. We, we're not perfect people. We don't want to be self-deceived. We trust that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Thank you, Father. We have sinned. We've sought to maintain and protect an image, a facade, a false self. We've lied to our friends, our spouses. Ultimately, Father, we've lied to you pray that as we are confronted and convicted by this, that you'd help us to believe and experience the goodness of your grace and the sufficiency of your work. Please help us to see in our mistakes that you're teaching us about your grace through them. You don't have to drive us away from who you are and from others. You actually invite us to take those and bring us closer in. Father, we pray that you would help us to revere you. We don't want to test you don't want to treat your word lightly. We, we want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we pray that, Jesus, you would come and do what you said you would do. That your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we thank you that one day there will finally be complete justice. Lord, those who hurt, those who abuse, those who lie, those who deceive, those who cheat, will not continue to hurt forever. 
Lord, help us to trust that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We thank you that you have protected and watched over this young church. We've experienced attacks. We've seen the enemy's plans to try to undermine. We ourselves might have even at times tried to participate in that by tearing each other down, by gossiping or slandering. Lord, thank you that you have protected this church and you sustain us. Please help us to maintain the unity of the spirit that you have created. You have, you have already won the battle and we want to live in, in, in your victory. We want to live from your victory. We don't want to live for it. We already have it. Please help us to live with and by the spirit and may we be comforted and strengthened in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.